Hey, listeners, this is the last one, the final of our four-part series about Canadian hydropower. If you haven't heard the previous three episodes, it's time to stop and start at the beginning. The first episode of the series is helpfully labeled Powerline Part 1. If you were hoping this series would be a nice, tidy narrative with uncomplicated good guys and bad guys, apologies in advance. This story isn't that. We actually always like a little bit of background. And to make that point, this is an interview we did in a town called Havre Saint Pierre, a small community way up on the north shore of the Gulf of Saint Lawrence. Think a couple hundred miles straight north from Nova Scotia. That's actually okay. Like we were saying, it's totally. It makes it feel like we're on a on a dock. This is a beautiful spot. Just off the shore is the Mingan Archipelago, a place with these tall rock towers that were carved out by tidal rivers millions of years ago. It's the kind of place where you can't even do an interview without being interrupted by whales feeding just off the dock. Sorry, the whales are back. <laughs> they're they're they are more interested yeah. <laughs> interesting, you know. I I can understand that. Havre Saint-Pierre is a town of French Canadians. It's about 20 miles down the road from Equinichit, the Innu community. And we're here talking to Sonia. Yeah, um, I'm Sonia Burgess. I work uh, for Hydro-Quebec. And I I went to high school with the people, uh, the native people in Equinichit, uh, uh, because in those times there weren't uh, any school in the community. Sonia does a job for Hydro-Quebec that probably didn't exist in the early days of the company. My job is to ensure that the agreement signed by the people uh, of Equinichit um, and uh, the, the hydro objectives are met. In other words, she's the company's point person with the Innus of Equinichit, their front line. These communities, Havre Saint-Pierre and Equinichit, host Hydro-Quebec's newest mega-project, the Romaine Complex. When it's done, it'll be four dams on one river. The third was completed this year, and the fourth is slated for 2020. But this project has gone differently from the others we've been talking about. From the word go, Hydro-Quebec has been consulting with locals, asking their opinions, making changes based on that, consulting and accommodating as the Canadian courts now require that they do. Those objectives are in this uh, resume. Summary. (laughs) In summary, is to maintain their way of life. Hydro-Quebec signed agreements with four Innu communities, including Equinichit, before the Romaine project ever got underway. The exact details of those agreements are confidential, but we do know some things. Before the project, the community didn't have much money to go in the Nuchimit. Nuchimit is is a new word um, meaning uh, the territory. The deal set aside money to pay travel expenses for families headed to their traditional winter territories. It paid to establish a native-owned helicopter company. It provided funds for a community cultural center. It set aside money for workforce training and economic development. In total, it is worth $75 million over 60 years. Sonia says the Inus of Equinici are tough negotiators. They don't put up with any grab from Rydro, you know? They, they don't, they don't. And that's okay. They, they, with, with every uh, partnership, you know, you, you, are, you want something, they want something, and we communicate. Mm-hmm. 
This agreement is representative of how the conflicts of the 70s, 80s, and 90s, the ones we've been telling you about in this series, have changed Hydro-Quebec. It is true that Canadian Supreme Court rulings require the company to do this, but over the course of reporting the story, we've heard from some of Hydro-Quebec's longest-suffering opponents that they've witnessed a real change in the types of people the company hires to interact with First Nations. People like Sonia. Um, I didn't told you before, but I have a niece and nephew from Equinichit, so that's not my... uh, and I'm emotional. (laughs) Sorry. But... That's my family too, you know. So we want do to do good things with the people, you know. Hydro is is for is there's people who work for for Hydro, and we uh, we have good intentions, you know. And we're not perfect, but we we are working with the people, and we want to work with it with them. So I hope you give this message with all the the rest of the message you want to give. (laughs) I hope you give this one. From New Hampshire Public Radio, this is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. And this is the final episode of our series, Powerline. Stories of who has power, who wields it, and when you've got none... How do you take it? Much of this series has been set in the past, but today we're going to be talking about the present. And in this episode, after eight months of reporting on this story, we're going to tell you what we feel like we've learned. And once you know what we think, maybe you can come to your own conclusion about the electrons that are coming down the line. What you just heard from Sonia is definitely one of my takeaways from this story. Hydro-Quebec is a different company today than it was in the 70s. It wasn't just Sonia who said this. Indigenous people who work with folks like Sonia said it too. It's still a hydropower company. Their strategic plan still says that they will find more rivers to develop in the next few years. But it's a company that does things differently and has hired people with very different values. Hydro-Quebec has changed. But has it changed enough? To try to answer that, we're going to head to Equinichit, the native community down the road that you heard Sonia mention. Also, side note, you are listening to the sound of someone finishing a loaf of bread that is cooked in this totally fascinating way. They bury the raw dough in hot sand and then build a fire on top. But when you put raw dough into sand, your bread is all sandy, so they scrape off the outside. We're here because this is where Hydro-Quebec's latest mega project is being built. And we're talking to Rayal McKenzie. He used to be chief of a community much farther north, but he lost his election and has come down to Equinichit in order to help out the chief here. He's the chief's translator, but also kind of his body man. And there's a particular story he likes to tell. Yes, yes. Just um, when, we, when we went to Standing Rock. Standing Rock. The reservation of the Standing Rock Sioux, who led the protest against the Dakota Access Pipeline. Real and the chief went down five times. 
One of those times, he says, someone mentioned the activists would need warmer winter accommodations. The next time, they came back with a traditional long canvas tent equipped with the central wood stove. Tell the chief, thank you very much. He said, we don't even use uh, the sleeping bag. It's so warm, the thing. <laughs> we are completely nude and, you know, sleeping. And all it was cool and windy, you know. And when they left, they realized that they had missed seeing Neil Young perform at the camp by one day. Jesus! He said, we should stay one more day, <laughs> you know. Too late! And he, so he's a Neil Young fan? Yeah, oh yes. I, the Inu Nation, they like Neil, Neil Young. I guess across Canada, the, the First Nation. Who doesn't like him? Yeah. He's good, he's good. We tell you this story because, in part, we could listen to Rayal's stories all day. In fact, we did. (laughs) But also because it speaks to how the indigenous movement works. It's international, and it always has been. And so you had uh, Canadian indigenous peoples um, having a meeting, you know, in mid-1970s, create, for instance, the World Congress of Indigenous People. This is Krista Schultz, a McGill professor who studies the politics of the indigenous movement. She says very early on, these groups skipped right over their national governments and went straight to forums like the United Nations with their grievances. Canada is is a strong player in the mix. You know, Australia, New Zealand, it's happening. Um, also South America. What this means is that every protest... Every bit of progress is, in a way, shared among the whole movement. Whenever tactics or rhetoric are successful in one place, they're adopted in other places. First Nations build on the court victories of other First Nations in their own legal fights. And right now, there are a lot of people who are feeling pretty optimistic about the place this international network of Indigenous activists is finding themselves in. Krista is one of them. I mean, they have always done so. And um, what has waxed and waned, and I think is on the, on the, I always forget which one's which. <laughs> wax is getting bigger. We, okay, on the wax is that people are actually listening. What is this movement saying? While the battle of the moment might be a pipeline or a dam or a forestry contract, there's an overarching conflict that unites these seemingly unrelated issues. And so while Hydro-Quebec now hires people like Sonia Burgess, who do seem to be genuinely invested in the Native communities they work with, the question is, does this address that fundamental conflict? We'll dig into that question after the break. Welcome back. I'm Hannah McCarthy. And I'm Sam Evans-Brown. Now, one thing that became very clear on our trips up north, as long as there are people who remember the past, it's still here with us. On the day we spent with Rayal McKenzie and Jean-Charles Piatasho, the chief of Equinichit, they wanted to take us up to see the dams on the Romaine River and the locally owned and operated helicopter company the community has created. It was a two- or three-hour drive on dirt roads, so we got coffee to start. And on the way up the road, Jean-Charles told us the story of how the Romaine project came to be. He says the project was on the books for decades before Hydro-Quebec finally came to the region in 2007 or 2008. 
The company was offering to negotiate a benefit package with the four Innu communities affected by the project. But the chief and his council were resolutely opposed to sitting down with the company. Outside the leadership, though, there was division. Some people, you know, they were really willing to not touch the land. And the other half, looking for jobs. Because most of the Innu community, they're poor. One by one, the four Innu communities split off to cut their own individual deals with Hydro-Quebec. Soon, people from Equinichit began to ask Jean-Charles to do the same. See, that's one of the strategies uh, coming from hydro governments or mining companies. They know us. They know us. They know how we divided. They know if we, they, they divided us, they're going to win their position. You understand? He and the band council decided to put it to a vote. They held a referendum and 70% voted in favor of allowing Hydro to build the project and to make the deal. La déception, comme tout le monde, sauf que il fallait euh, accepter. Euh, he was disappointed, but according to the people' decision, he had he had to accept it. You know. After about 45 minutes of driving, it's late afternoon. The chief has the radio on, and we pull up to the first security checkpoint. It's across from this giant, empty workforce housing complex that used to hold the construction crews for the second Romaine Dam, finished back in 2014. There are two guards in the gatehouse, looking over our IDs. Earlier in the day, when the chief told us that he wanted to take us up the river, he had called ahead with our passport numbers. But when we get to the gates, the guard tells us we needed to ask for security clearance at least 48 hours in advance. And so we can't go on. Well, the chief is a little bit surprised there, but... Usually said that with my guests, I don't have problem. He was mad. He didn't buy this 48 hours business. He was the chief. And we were his guests. He started to make calls to his contacts higher up within Hydro-Quebec. And at first, Real was taking this all in stride. Okay, a lot of people now they are in the phone because <laughs> the chief is upset. <laughs> he just called one of the vice presidents in Montreal. <laughs> the calls bounce around for a while, but eventually he gets somebody at Hydro-Quebec on the line, a manager of Aboriginal Affairs. But I'm blocked here, là. Here he's saying that this is the second time he's been blocked at the gate with guests, and that if they don't open the gate and let him through, he's going to come back with his friends and blockade the road. This is not an idle threat. In fact, during the construction of the Romaine, the road was blocked twice by locals making various demands of Hydro-Quebec. Both times, work on the project stopped. After an hour of calls and waiting in the car, the chief finally gets word back that his contact at Hydro-Quebec is not going to get us through. The answer is no. We turned around and drove back toward the coast. Jean-Charles was absolutely fuming. He had stopped speaking French and was now only speaking to us in Inu, meaning Rayal had to translate everything. I know the guys working at the security at the gate there. They refuse the chief. For him, it's humiliated, you know? Humiliated. Humiliated. You know what I mean? For him, he takes it like humiliation. 
So he's uh, Chile is humiliated now. So next, I don't know what's going to happen. We call that uh, incident, a dip- diplomatic incident. He was angry because he had lost face. The chief had been turned away by a lowly security guard. And now he was turning on us, angry that we had done interviews with Hydro-Quebec. But, but you meet these guys too. Because on that, on that case, the chief said, if I knew you're going to meet also Hydro-Quebec, well, I wouldn't accept you guys to meet you. That's what he's saying. You understand? Yeah. I, I mean... So he is a little bit upset, and I understand too. You know, he was probably hoping, the way he said the chief, no Hydro-Quebec in the picture. You're coming here for the chief, and you want to hurt from the chief. Well, it's only the chief. No Hydro-Quebec around. It's, he said, if I knew that, fine. Yeah. But if you were, uh, you were coming here to meet also Hydro-Quebec, well, in that case, he said, I wouldn't accept you guys to, to make you an interview. Is there a reason why? Because for us to do a story you about... Understand? Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm sorry to tell you this. But no, well, I, I, I'm just trying to convey that that our intention was never to humiliate the chief. That was not our intention. Probably, I'm no. No, for sure. Yeah. For sure, that was not our Absolutely intention. Absolutely not our intention. Yeah. We know the people what they're what they're doing us, the white people. They laugh on him because the, no matter if you work for Hydro Quebec or not, when you're at home, you call your colleagues there. Uh, you know what? I was working today, and believe where, what happened there. No, tell me. Ah, oh, Chief Pietasho come with a uh, former Chief McKenzie with his guests. You know what? They refused him to pass the gate. <laughs> That's what happened, guys. We know our people. I know the game. It's a big discrimination in Quebec against the First Nation. We know that. We live here. We feel it just by the way they, they look at us, you know. We feel it. That's why we're not happy. It's deep. Yes. Deep. Remember, this is a community that voted 70% in favor of making a deal with Hydro-Quebec. But these frustrations with the company are about more than just dams and reservoirs or security checkpoints. Like the indigenous movement as a whole, at their root, these conflicts are about land rights, about the legacy of colonialism, about all of the personal slights that First Nations people have felt over their whole lifetime. Slights that no amount of money can erase. Conversations like this one happened a lot when we were up in Canada. We would ask them to talk about how flooding had impacted their traditional lifestyle, and they'd lead off by telling us how Native people were forced to attend Catholic residential schools, how they were punished for speaking their language or practicing their customs. Hydropower has its impacts, but those impacts are all muddled together with everything else European colonization has visited upon Native people. For us, at times, it was dizzying. It was hard to sort it all out. As we came back home, drove hours in the car, and talked about everything we had heard, what we settled on is this. Opposition to hydro development is about something much bigger than the actual projects themselves. 
feature of the way the electric grid works is that it's impossible to say exactly where your energy is coming from. Coal, natural gas, nuclear, it's all feeding into the same system. And your average consumer doesn't get a say in the provenance of the electrons they use. The same is true of Canadian hydro. We can't really know where the energy that Hydro-Quebec sells to New England comes from. We don't know if it comes from the projects that were built on the pessimist's territory back in the 50s and 60s, projects that flooded native camps with no advanced notice. It was unconstitutional, illegal, totally illegal. We don't know if it comes from the first phase of the James Bay project, which was built against the wishes of the Cree, but did eventually result in them getting more than $100 million to build up their local institutions. I'm a Cree. I'll never pay my hydro bill. Till today, I don't pay for it. And we don't know if it comes from one of the modern projects, projects which eventually won the support of the entire Cree nation or the individually affected Innu communities. It's kind of dumb to hate a logo. And there's different ways to work with companies. What we can say is that every one of those electrons contains a little bit of each of those stories. And those electrons contain something else. Something we haven't really dug into yet. Energy. We started the series by telling you how Massachusetts really wants to connect to this energy source, wants to use Canadian hydropower to meet this really aggressive goal of cutting back its emissions. And that's what makes this narrative so complicated. Hydro-Quebec is not the Dakota Access Pipeline. We're talking about renewable energy. We're talking about a source that, while it does emit some carbon, doesn't put out a lot. And this is kind of the elephant in the room here. We're talking about climate change, too. Everywhere we went, we were asking Native people what New Englanders should think about this power. When we were in Chesapeake, we talked to Violet Pachano, former chief of the community, who spent decades fighting against hydro development. The first thing she said was how much she appreciated her electric washing machine, how much easier it was than heating river water on a pot over a fire, like she did as a child. And and for me, uh, I would say that uh, I guess there's some guilt in appreciating the power, (laughs) making life easier, work easier. Yeah, I guess it should just be in the conscience of people what this, what's happening and where this comes from and what has happened. But do you see what, what do we do about global warming, you know? And people are talking about it too. Like uh, the elders, they, tell, they talk about the difference, what was then, how the winters were and the summers. And uh, I, I remember all that. And now, like, this river doesn't freeze. And later that same day, Robert Kanatawat, one of the original signers of the James Bay and Northern Quebec Agreement, he went even further. Um, I sort of, you know, it's kind of surprised, but I, I sort of believe in, in hydro, the way they, they uh, advertise their uh, power. The natural gas and all those other things, you know, are a little more dangerous than hydropower through the um, turbine. So it's a little surprising to hear someone who was a negotiator at the James Bay Northern Quebec Agreement say that you you think hydro is a good source of power. Um, 
more and more people are going to be uh, born. With that, power will be required no matter what you think. No matter how, how, how you hate hydropower, a lot of people will require that. We've got to get our power from somewhere. If we build the Northern Pass or any other power line to the north, that power is linked to flooded native land, the loss of habitats, the mercury in the fish. But if we choose to get it from somewhere else, our power will be linked with other things. Mountaintop removal mining and black lung, or fracking and methane emissions. When you say no to one source of power, you say yes to something else. And no matter what source you name, I can give you a dedicated constituency that has legitimate grievances with that source. Think we should be building offshore wind farms? Talk to the fishermen and the marine biologists. Think we should be building massive solar farms? Talk to the open space advocates or the grid's electrical engineers. Maybe that means that if anyone tries to tell you that there's an easy answer when it comes to this power source, maybe tell them to think it over to think it all over one more time. Outside In and this Powerline miniseries was produced by me, Sam Evans-Brown. And me, Hannah McCarthy, with help from Taylor Quimby, Jimmy Gutierrez, Ben Henry, Nick Capodice, Daniel Barrick, and Lauren Chuljan. A special extra thanks to Maureen McMurray, who basically cleared all the hurdles that would have kept a little public radio station podcast from doing a series like this. Yeah, thanks, Maureen. And a very special thanks to Sarah Plort. She created all of those amazing maps and other graphics that you see on the website. She makes us look really good. We'd like to give our thanks to everyone who spoke to us for this series, including Lynn St. Laurent, Jean-Luc Canape, Ronald Neeson, Kirsten Anker, Frank McGilligan, Kent McNeil, Ryan Coulter, Charles Cousson, Fred Short, Brian Craig, Bershman Boudreau, Gary Sutherland, and Anne-Marie Prudhomme. Also, Sylvan Marson, René Simon, Paul Charest, Pierre-Olivier Pinot, David Massel, Richard Janda, Jean-Thomas Bernard, Jean-Philippe Gilbert, Karine de Rocher, and the Cree Trappers Association, Margaret Fireman and the Chisassabe Heritage and Cultural Center, and Davy Bobish. And remember that if you want to see some of this stuff to get a sense of the scale that we're talking about here, check out the website outsideinradio.org. Today we've got a map of the Romaine River and all of the ways that Hydro-Quebec has tried to address the impacts of its latest project. We've also got a huge gallery of all the other photos that didn't make it into the web post. We can spare you the 20 hours of driving and you can still see all of northern Quebec. <laughs> and you should also check us out on social media. We tweet things and then we Instagram other things at Outside In Radio. Music from this week's episode came to us from Blue Dot Sessions and Komiku. And our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. Yay! Yay!